0: Welcome to the Collective Impact Forum podcast, here to share resources to support social change makers working on cross sector collaboration. The Collective Impact Forum is a nonprofit field building initiative and online community that is co hosted in partnership by the nonprofit consulting firm FSG and the Aspen Institute Forum for Community Solutions. In this episode, we are hosting a roundtable discussion with the Collective Impact Forum team where we are sharing reflections on the impact of the pandemic, the economic downturn, and the recent protests to support Black lives, as well as answering some questions from community members. One reminder for listeners, for any resources referenced in this discussion, we've included links to those in the footnotes for this episode, so feel free to check those out if it's helpful. Hello everyone. Thank you again for joining this roundtable today. I know listeners may be familiar with a few folks here. First, we have Executive Director of the Collective Impact Forum, Jennifer Splansky-Jester. Thanks for joining us here, Jen.
1: Hi, Tracy. Great to be on with all of you.
0: Next, we have Director of Programs at the Collective Impact Forum, Robert Albright. Appreciate you being here, Robert. Thanks, Tracy. And for the first time joining the podcast, please let me introduce my forum teammate uh, an Associate Director for Strategic Partnerships at the Aspen Institute Forum for Community Solutions, Sherry Brady. So great to have you
2: here, Sherry. Hi, Tracy. Thanks for inviting me.
0: And we're excited to have today two of our forum's senior advisors. Please let me welcome first Junius Williams, who, along with advising the forum, is principal of Junius Williams Consulting, and prior to this, served as president and CEO of the social impact organization, Urban Strategies Council. Thank you for being here, Junius.
3: Hello, Tracy. Greetings from Oakland.
0: And last but not least, please welcome Senior Advisor Paul Schmitz, who is CEO of Leading Inside Out, as well as author of the book, Everyone Leads, Building Leadership from the Community Up, and is former CEO of Public Allies. Thanks so much for joining us today, Paul.
4: Great to be with all of you.
0: So, for today's roundtable, we are going to address some of the questions that have come up from community members. But before that, we just want to take a few minutes to reflect on what's going on now. For listeners, we're recording this on June 11th, 2020, just three months from March 11th, which feels like a monumental day. And not just for sports fans, since that was the day when the NCAA announced that they were canceling the championship games due to the pandemic. It's the same date when Governor Inslee, here in Washington State, announced banning large events with schools to close soon after that. And overall, things changed very fast across the United States. And a lot has happened since then. Over 100,000 people in the U.S. alone have lost their lives to the COVID-19 virus in just three months, with a very disproportionate impact on black and brown communities, especially hit by it. Along with the pandemic and the subsequent economic downturn, including millions in the U.S. who have furloughed or lost their jobs, we have also seen the continuing brutality and murders of Black folks by the U.S. police forces, including the Memorial Day murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, which has set off a huge movement of protests and demands across the country and across the world for accountability and change in regards to the police and public safety. For us here at at this virtual roundtable, we are all located across the US and we each are witnessing now the many protests in our communities that are demanding for change and justice for black lives. So that is my attempt to describe just a little bit what has been going on to help set the context for today. So before we start with community questions, we just wanna kick things off with your own reflections what has been coming up for you when thinking about all of this that's been going on from the health crisis with the pandemic, the economy and the black lives matter movements that are happening across the country and demanding forms, uh, demanding reforms. Uh, what has been coming up
2: for you? Hi, this is Sherry. I'll start. Um, I think for me, there's been a couple of things. It feels like um, some of it at the beginning of the um, I would say I think that part of it for me is feels like this it could potentially really be a turning point. I feel like some of the, the, the what we've seen is not a surprise for those of us who sort of think about equity issues on a regular basis. I mean, obviously, nobody expected the Spanish Inquisition in the form of COVID-19, but um, but like the impact that it had on communities of color, black, um, black, Indigenous and people of color are not surprising, right? Like if you've looked at the The numbers and the 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 way that systems have not served those communities well, they're not surprised by that, but then you think about um the George Floyd's being the sort of linchpin or or impetus it's sort of like, what about that made this moment any different than any other sort of death that has happened at the hands of the police in this community like um I feel that. So I'm feeling that this really could potentially be a turning point, but I also worry because this country has short-term memory loss, but it feels like there are people that you don't expect to come out and are saying things. So I think that I'm wanting to feel hopeful, but still sort of having a cynical moment about what this, but I really am also thinking about how do we not just long for normalcy, which I hear a lot of people talking about, but how we long for reconstruction and change and rebuilding the systems that have failed Uh, many folks, um, for so long. So that's kind of what's on my mind these days.
4: Sherry, I, 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 I hold a lot of the same view. I mean, early last week I was despairing (laughs) and just thought thinking about the fact that, you know, we had this global pandemic, this economic collapse and, uh, both of them, uh, reigniting, uh, the issues around racial equity in our community and then adding into that, the police brutality issues And as the police, in in my eyes, were rioting against protesters last week, it was despairing me. As the protests in Milwaukee, where I live, have continued and grown, and as I've seen the demands that the protesters are making actually start to have uh, some impact on the conversation and the debate in public, uh, it's made me feel somewhat more hopeful. But like you, I'm worried because America is fickle and uh, easily distracted and moved on to the next thing. And 2020 feels like it's that. And uh, and I, I wonder how many of the people out in the streets yelling Black Lives Matter uh, will go full-throated behind the policy and systems changes uh, that the protests represent. Just quickly, when we think about our work, collective impact existed before there was a thing called collective impact. And I think these movements are demonstrating, again, the power of groups and individuals coming together. Here in Milwaukee, there's a coalition of coalitions that have led the policy work of, at the grassroots level. The protesters are working in a networked way. They have clear goals. Uh, they're measuring their progress. It feels like a lot of the, the the practices we've learned, effective movements have always done. And I feel like I'm seeing a lot of that effectiveness, uh, a lot more effectiveness than than I've seen in past times. It feels like,
3: at least here, uh, the group's really making great progress. Um, I'm uh, of two minds. I'm really encouraged by what's happening and would agree with Sherry. Something very different is happening this time than at least I've experienced um, in uh, my life, including the period of the 60s uh, of the campus-based and Black Action Movement. activities so uh i'm really encouraged by that um i hope people understand um this isn't a matter of a week or two this is a matter of unfortunately given the history in america of a lifelong commitment to doing the structural changes that need to happen and keeping in mind that we spent 400 years building Um, an oppressive system for Black folks and other folks of color, and we're not going to eliminate it uh, in the short term, and that sustainable and sustaining pressure is going to be necessary. Uh, The other mind that I have that's kind of coupled with that encouragement is it's the worst time in American history to have an imbecile in the White House. I can't think of a worst person to be there because almost any other leader, certainly in my lifetime, and uh, I'm not a historian, but almost any place in history, almost any other leader could have, could capitalize on this opportunity and move us substantially as a country. And in fact, what we find is an idiot who is resisting what is a clear sentiment of, uh, of a growing majority of American people that we deal with some of the issues uh, related uh, to racism, related to police violence, uh, and then the uh, plethora of other issues that coalesce to conspire against people of color uh, in the country.
5: A couple of things that I've been uh, thinking about, just to build on what others have said, I think I've been in a space in the last week of just really reflecting on white silence. And as a white man myself, just there's a lot of opportunities that I can actually turn off or not directly address where where there are inequities. I think that I'm I'm finding that not saying anything is, is, is saying something. And so I think I'm coming at this from a position of humility and really wanting to do more than just be someone who listens and learns, but actually takes that posture of humility outward into action. So I think that I'm in a space of of just internal reflection, but not wanting it to stay there. Cause I feel like just kind of listening to and better understanding our nation's history around racism and how it's embedded in systems is not enough right now. Um, So I think that's kind of where I am is just feeling a lot of privilege and trying to think through how I show up and use whatever small sliver of power influence that I have for, for justice.
1: I mean, listening to you all, it reminds me why I am so lucky to work with all of you and how much I have learned from all of you that are on the line right now. And and this is Jen calling in from uh, Berkeley, California, down the road from Junius. Um, and, you know, some of my sentiments have been echoed in that mix of optimism and uh, or hope more than optimism and Frustration with national leadership, who has already moved on beyond uh, the pandemic in discourse, and is likely to move on to the next thing from, um, you know, racial equity soon as well, and that is deeply troubling. I also, as a white woman, reflect a lot on my privilege right now and privilege of many people like me who can move on when they feel like it, and in the time of the pandemic when many folks are still sheltering in place and living in a bubble, it's very easy to hunker down inside that bubble and not use your, you know, use a voice in the short-term, medium or long-term to advocate for change as, you know, as a white ally in this movement. And so I think the pandemic, uh, this happening during the pandemic, I. Imagine that there is so much power in the uh, the movement for Black Lives right now because it is in this moment of crisis, and it also provides, I fear, an easy. The pandemic provides an easy way for white folks to opt out because they're distracted. You know, people are distracted by, by other crises. So that's just something I've been thinking about how to hold the different crises in place with each other.
2: Just to follow up a little bit on Jen, I think what we also need to, part of our conversation in, about this is that these are crises that are building on top of each other. So it's kind of like, I think one of the things that we fault at in the social sector is we tend to approach things, um, which is ironic as I'm saying this on a collective impact call, but we tend to approach things in sectors, right? So it's like, it's like, oh, if we just fix that, it'll be fine. So people are like, oh, we just need to get over COVID and everything will go back to normal We'll be fine. But it's sort of the systemic things. It's that, you know, the fact that people's health care is tied to their jobs. And so all the people who have lost their jobs now have also lost healthcare, care in, in the middle of a pandemic and, you know, and um, and those kinds of things and that we're having, you know, and that, you know, the people who are most impacted by those are often the ones who didn't have a lot of room in the beginning, didn't have a lot of um, foundation or, um you know, or bubble to sort of, to weather storms. Um, and so I think that those are the things we need to think about. And then, you know, we have, this is happening this is happening globally, I think, a lot of these things, not just the pandemic, but also this, this call for action on communities of color um, in, in, in places. And we have, a, as Junius mentioned, we have a president who is also turning us more inward and we're a, glo- we're, we're a global, you know, we become a global economy, we become a sort of a global society. And I don't know how we can continue to do that and still proclaim to be sort of, you know, the greatest country or whatever, the leader of the free world, all these titles that, that have, have been in place around the United States. So I think that that's also the other thing that we have, that our, our status, for lack of a better term, in sort of the global society is completely plummeting in our response to all of these things. Um, so I think that those are things we also need to to think about.
0: Yeah, I think the thing is, is Tracy. I think uh, for me, what's been coming up, and I'm in Seattle, uh, Washington State, where where things kind of like uh, started in the U.S. Uh, in King County. The thing I think about a lot is overall. The, I've been really pondering the the term of uh, the resiliency of racism. I've been thinking a lot about that and how we've seen so many especially like corporations and organizations and everything where where, where, everyone's releasing statements everyone is putting out a very branded statement on, on on solidarity and i think you know that's great it's so interesting to think about like two years later two years ago people couldn't wouldn't use the words black lives matter in a press release so that's nice but i also think about the tension around holding people accountable and not just learning the words around anti-racism and uh, justice for black lives and not actually adhering to what that means and I my fear my cynicism is is that it's just another way where white supremacy can mold itself in order to keep getting money and keep staying in power and keep not sharing power is if we just learn the vocabulary and this is what it looks like then we don't actually have to change anything and so that's that's kind of where my mind is
3: Yeah, one of the things that uh, I I share that concern, uh, Tracy, and uh, that's why in, as I think strategically about it, we have to mount a set of immediate demands. None of this stuff is new. And there are a lot of people who have a new awakening about racism in America who want to go and start the analysis all over. And that's... uh, extremely frustrating to people who uh, of color who engage in this every day of their lives intergenerationally. And that's why the framing is, what are you going to do right now? I don't need any lip service. We know enough about every one of these problems that racism has produced to have an immediate agenda that we could do tomorrow. So I, and I'm not a, uh, denigrating the need to do more analysis and to have everyone at the table, but my litmus test, uh, whether it be a business, whether it be an elected leader or whomever, what are you going to do right now within your scope of authority to demonstrate a commitment? And then we can have the conversation about the task force or the commission. But I, the least credible For me is, you know, plastering Black Lives Matter uh, across your social media. And in fact, to to me, that's a turnoff. That is too damn easy to do at this point. Um, This whole 15% movement, for example, that's encouraging and I want to watch and see who lines up to say that they're going to create 15% of their shelf space in retail. Uh, for African-American producers, manufacturers, and and owners. That's a substantive sort of thing. Um, I'm at the point in life and career that it's too easy to talk a good game. I want to see some definitive action that shows me that you're willing to take some level of risk in terms of moving the agenda.
5: One question I have for the group, because I've been thinking about just to build on what you were saying, Junius, about wanting to go beyond just analyzing the problem or kind of empty words, but to actually see that communities would begin to, to tackle some of these systemic issues. And I've had some conversations with, with colleagues internally and with, with other partners around how much are we talking about concrete actions that are going to kind of work within a current system versus completely overhaul dismantle a system and really rebuild it. And, I'd love to hear how you all are thinking about that because it feels like there, I feel like one danger of moving to concrete actions is that you could end up with a bunch of actions that are more um, kind of tweaks around the edges that might change the system, but not completely overhaul it. And I think that will frankly make white people probably more comfortable if there are things that I could get behind because it's not going to drastically require me to give up power. It's not going to drastically require me to give up my influence, but it does feel like this moment in time is calling for much deeper changes, but I think that's where it's gonna be really challenging for people, particularly those who already are comfortable with the level of influence and control that they have to truly give up uh, what, what they have.
4: From a, from a system change perspective, I think one of the things that people can do is act concurrently. And I think sometimes people make an either or instead of a both and out of that. And so, I would like to see our entire way of policing in my city completely redone. Uh, We have an amazing Office of Violence Prevention. We have a lot of other resources that could be uh, built up. At the same time, there are steps within the infrastructure our mayor or our police chief or our city council can take right now that would be immediately impactful but not as impactful as the larger system change. And I guess I would be pushing for both. And I think to Junius's point, what I'm seeing is a lot of people ready to shout the slogans, but not really to take ready to take the actions. And I think uh, mayor and many others are calling for commissions and we're like, we've been commissioned already. We already have that. And I, I have to say that a lot of nonprofits uh, statements I've seen have also been kind of at the level of platitudes and, uh, not at the level of of really calling for system change or risking anything. Um, and I think, uh, you know, until nonprofits and funders are willing to kind of really put risk into the game, it's, it's kind of hard to see how change happens with their participation. And, and so I think even for the collective impact groups, it's like, who are you listening to and supporting? In Milwaukee, as I mentioned, there's a group of, of grassroots African American organizations that put together a policy agenda. I'm not seeing our major foundations or nonprofit leaders or United Way get behind that. Yeah, um, it's,
2: sorry, Paul. It's it's about investing in in black lives in in, in organizations that are led by black folks that are we have been working on these issues systemically for a while. It's not about sort of saying, oh, they're risk, they're too risky to invest in, you know, it's it's about investing in sort of those, um, those grassroots work that has been happening. It's also, um, it's it's also when people talk about sort of we want to study, we're not quite ready, we want to make sure that we don't make a mistake, it's a it's a way of sort of like push kicking it down the road, right? It's a way of not doing anything but saying, I am concerned, but I just don't want to make a mistake. It's like, but you have to do something. There needs to be some action. So I feel like I'm always frustrated, and I work at a place where we talk a lot. Um, and so so I, I feel that that's really is but it really is about investing in those folks. And if you don't know the answer, there are people out there who do know the answer who are doing this work. Partner with them. Talk to them. Ask them what they need from you.
3: Yeah, uh, I want to add, though, to Paul's point about the system stuff. And one of the things that troubles me, uh, from a systems perspective, the way that we're talking about the police violence and And I understand tactically the importance of of the opportunity to do something immediately about the most oppressive elements in some respects, of the criminal justice system. But it is a system. Where's the conversation about prosecutors? Where's the conversation about the fact in Alameda County, and we've done some recent reforms in California, 75% of the people who traditionally sit in the county jail are awaiting trial, which means that they have the presumption of innocence. But we've held them captives because we essentially have uh, um, a system that uh, incarcerates impoverished people when all the evidence suggests that we don't, we don't need to, uh, that there are tools to assess the likelihood that they will show up for trial that are fairly reliable. And that if we provide people with the right kind of support, they don't have to suffer the exaggerated injuries of losing job, of stigma, of all the other things, because we've made a decision that we're going to incarcerate large numbers of Black and brown people to just begin to send the message about who's in charge. So for me, the criminal justice stuff, I think a good point is to stop the police from brutalizing folks. Boy, but going after prosecutors um, who aren't prosecuting police in most jurisdictions for their behavior, but find it very easy and convenient to prosecute all sort of poor people for low level uh, uh, crimes, including a lot of status crimes and incarcerate them. Uh, And it pertains to judges. I mean, it goes throughout what we're calling a criminal justice system, but there's very little justice. It's a criminal punishment system that has really honed its skills in punishing black and brown people. And that we need to say, yeah, the, the vanguard of it is some response to police, but the longer term is that we don't have a very effective system for ensuring the safety of people uh, in in the in, in the society, and we need to have that. And that the defunding stuff—that's really what it's about. It, it's about stepping back and reconceptualizing a system through which we ensure the safety and security and comfort uh, of people without regard to race.
0: So, a question that we get related to that, Junius, is um, from a lot of nonprofits who feel because the pandemic along with the economic downturn along with the the protests around accountability in our communities it has thrown like a you know quote-unquote wrench into a lot of people's strategic annual plans for their work and how they do their work and some a lot of uh, nonprofit orgs are feeling a sense of paralysis about how to what to do it all because it seems so hairy and complex uh about how to move forward like where would and so my question is, like, if for those for those that are experiencing that kind of paralysis, they're sheltering at home, they their work has completely changed, they have so much community need, they don't know where to start, and the the overarching issues are so huge yet so important, it can just feel like one, what step in the direc- which which direction should I take? I don't know. Um, is there anything that can be helpful in that to help move people out of that moment of paralysis?
3: Sherry already named it uh, just a moment ago. Uh, And and people say in the neighborhood, if you don't know, you better ask somebody. It's that simple. I mean, if if you're a service provider and your concept is that you're serving some constituency of people or clients and providing them something, you've got a built-in base. Go ask them, what would be helpful for us to do right now Uh, with respect to services. But also, since a lot of it tends to be people of color and low-income people and immigrants and undocumented and the whole litany of people that we've marginalized, there are plenty of people to, to give you authentic advice about what their needs are. I would make the other point that I think people who do collective impact need to be very careful about navigating this. Uh, and around trying to stick with what you conceptualize doing at a time when everything was different the pandemic, the economy, uh, the notion about racism in the society. And I'm not saying that, you know, the throttle back and go another direction, but you really, though, in consultation with whomever the constituency is, need to step back and ask is this still? the most vital, important, value-added thing that we could be doing. And if it's not, to have the conversation with funders, with directors and others to say, we're getting good uh, information that there is a better use of the assets and resources that we have than what we planned to do six months ago.
1: And I would just add to that, you know, Junia, something actually that we've talked about uh, before is try not to get stuck in another like six to 12 month planning process of like, what's our new perfect plan. And certainly you want to be thoughtful and do really meaningful listening, but think about what else you can do. That's uh, like rapid response or a, you know, a quick type of type of uh, pilot or program. Uh, Because these things are, you know, most likely you're going to be addressing something that's really important right now and can't wait. And that's not, speed is not always the strength of working in a collective impact initiative. But I think it's important not to be uh, too lumbering right now.
4: Yeah, you know, one of the things I heard in Junius's comment that I think is so important is it's, it's a time to center on the community, not on your institution. And so often organizations are so focused on how they're going to benefit and how they're going to, what they're, how they position themselves. Right now is a time to position yourself, not around yourself, but around really understanding the community and where the community needs and interests are and what you can do. And to be transparent about the boundaries you're putting around it, that you may be shifting from your normal set of programs and activities to some other ones for a period of time because of opportunity, because of need, because of other factors. And there's some tools that we've shared on the forum and that others have shared, like Marianne Arquia's uh, at the Center for Community Investments Strategy Triage Tool or Scenario Planning or other things that people can use to kind of rethink and understand how your work might be different over the next six to 12 months. But I think the most important thing is, is just really centering yourself Uh, not on what's my mission and goals, but center yourself on what does the community need right now? What are the opportunities for system change right now? And what I'm seeing out there is that the groups that are doing this well are the ones who are pivoting fast and not letting the petty get in the way. That a lot of the discussions and arguments and process we often labor through in Collective Impact, I'm seeing groups, just a sense of urgency and communities blowing through that and saying, we just got to get stuff to happen.
3: And just a quick note, Paul, on that, because I think that we we do have some capacity already to do that if we think about the the component uh in the startup phase of collective impact about quick wins applying the quick win sort of methodology might be a very good tool within the context of uh collective impact that people already have some familiarity with around strategically going after something. And it may not be the whole ball of wax, but it's enough to have some significant impact on the the needs of, of the community. And sorry, Robert, for cutting in.
5: Not at all. I no, that just to build on Paul, what you and Junius just said, it feels like there, there are likely a whole set of quick wins just around centering with the community that I could imagine collective impact initiatives doing. I, I would say that Those that have already prioritized or begun to prioritize community engagement, I feel like are going to be more set up to identify some quick wins because they probably have already signaled that this is a priority before COVID. I do worry about those collaboratives that were very top-down, you know, kind of working with the quote-unquote system leaders and have not really prioritized community voice and trying to do that now. But it does feel like whether you've deeply engaged in authentic community engagement now or not, it's super important to prioritize it right now.
0: And uh, it could also be good for organizations to look at, you know, what are the, the quote unquote uh, community businesses and community orgs and what are they doing? Cause a lot of them are pivoting very fast because they have immediate needs right in front of them at their door. So a lot, even just in Seattle, for instance, we have a lot of restaurants in our community who obviously have been very affected by the pandemic lockdown and are turning to doing a lot of different measures, whether it's feeding protesters for free, or setting up like bars, or setting up medical stations for protesters, or free water, or other restaurants are setting up and feeding community members who otherwise would are having like food uh, issues of getting food, and um, or they're setting up. Several funds to support restaurant workers at this time. So it's kind of so taking a cue from what the community orgs are already doing and, and letting the letting them lead the way along with asking them about how you can support them are all things that can be really helpful. So we only have a little bit of time left uh, for this episode. Do we think we can cover the, the first question, which was I linked a little bit to what you already talked about Paul, which was how does how does one plan for an unknown future.
1: When we think about planning for the unknown future, there are certainly things that are unknown, like when we will have a vaccine, but we know it's going to be a while. When will the economy turn up? Sadly, it's going to be a while. The economy is going to be down for a while. Um, there is no need to wait to understand the that all systems are racist uh, in the U.S., and that is not an unknown. So I think that... Certainly, it felt like a lot of unknowns, even two or three months ago, you know, when we when the pandemic started. And I, I am generally more optimistic, but I feel like now we we have a fair number of knowns of how things are going to be for the next 12 to 18 months. And planning around a down economy, limited travel, limited, you know, group meeting size. Um, increased urgency on, you know, racial equity and Black Lives Matter. I think those types of things hopefully are anchor points that people can do some planning around. I will just say, you know, the Collective Impact Forum team did our own uh, scenario planning, and it was a really great exercise. And Paul, maybe you want to say a little bit more about what you think about when you guide folks through that. But even though we all took on different scenarios along the dimensions of economic recovery and ability to convene, we landed in relatively similar places because they're along a spectrum of limitations on both dimensions, honestly. So I do think that there is some planning folks can do with those things actually being unfortunately more known than we would like.
4: Yeah, and some of those things are more known, but some are still unknown. So like whether schools are going to be open in September and what that looks like. There's a lot of collective impacts working in education who have no idea what a school day is going to look like in the fall still. True, fair there's enough. There's groups working on mental health who have no idea whether telehealth will still get a Medicaid waiver in the fall. So I think there's a lot of unknowns with at the level of program issues, yes. whereas some of those bigger macro trends, I think we have a better sense of. Yep. But at, we don't know yet how municipalities, schools, Businesses, et cetera, may be effective. There's a resurgence in the fall. If, like, there are th- ways in which whether childcare providers will have enough PPE. I mean, there's there's a lot of things I'm hearing from groups working at the uh, on issues at a grassroots or at the community level that there's still a lot of unknown about how how the needs and services will look in the fall and next year, and what they'll need and what they'll have access to and then of course you've got just the fact that so many organizations who are doing this work are also on the edge of economic collapse and so there's a lot of concern about what's going to be available for them and how are they you know who's going to be standing in the fall so i think those issues matter a lot and and again i think that within that that a tool like scenario planning can help you look at possible options for like what if schools open fully what if there's no extracurriculars like you know to plan around different things. Something like the strategy triage tool from the Center for Community Investment can help in terms of deciding what do we keep doing? What do we pause? When do we bring it back? What do we stop doing? What do we, what do we need to know more about? And so I think there are some tools out there that people have found helpful in planning in the uncertain environment, but there's certainly both some knowns at a macro level that for the next year, things are gonna be difficult. And then a micro level, just still a lot of unknown as systems are still trying to figure out how they're gonna operate within the space.
1: Great point, Paul. And as, <laughs> as someone with a rising kindergartener, I should know the level of uncertainty of having no idea if she will be going to school or fully online or what, and the implications on you know, parents and jobs and all of those ripple effects.
3: Well, the other, the other context, and I'm not trying to be flippant, where the more important set is what do you want to be true? We need to have that conversation and uh, around basic structural overhaul of this society uh, because I think that it creates some North Stars that that we need to have and it gives rise to some discussions that we need to have. Uh, So for example, universal healthcare, that that should be the known that all of us are trying to create, because this pandemic has demonstrated to us that our system is totally defective uh, in terms of being able to address the needs of the people. Guaranteed income and employment. I think that part of what we need to do is to say, yeah, there's some uncertainty around what all of these factors, but there's some knowns around what our aspirations are as people within this society that should anchor us to some extent. And I'm really concerned that we get those North Stars, so to speak, out there so that the kind of immediate decisions that we're making align with where we think we're going. And uh, again, with the splits in the American culture, we need to have that conversation because I know with a lot of people who don't share my political perspective, we have a hard time having a conversation. If you don't believe in the basic humanity of other people, then it's hard for me to have a discussion. If you don't believe that there are some basic human rights that have to be observed, uh, in, in a, a, a civil society, then we're gonna have trouble having the conversation. So I would like, as we're trying to figure out those things that may get aligned, that we're not abandoning the conversation about what are now the 21st century aspirations for what America is gonna be. I
4: feel like we've all been arguing for these things for a long time, but the COVID crisis especially Illustrated to a lot of people who hadn't seen what everyone was talking about, how broken the systems are. In the same way that uh, the past week, I think people who are, are newcomers to it are realizing how broken the police system is. Um, I think I've I know people who the actual res- the, the 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 murder of George Floyd was horrific to them. But the actual police brutality of peaceful protesters around the country since has helped them finally get what people have been talking about. And I feel like on homelessness, on food, on uh, evictions, on all sorts of issues, we're seeing people wake up to issues that they didn't really understand fully before. and. Uh, It is a hope and I think it's something everyone can be working on is is I think now is a time to be pushing system change and to recognize that politics typically follows public will and the more we build the public conversation and will around these things, the more likely the politics will follow. If we look at freedom to marry, they lost in California just in 2010. Uh, They moved public will in a bunch of states and the politicians all followed. And I think we have to remember that, that it's, it's not we wait for the politicians to take ac- action. We have to move the public will in conversation in our communities to normalize these kinds of system changes as options and then begin pursuing them. But I, I think there's more energy than I've seen. Uh, the question is whether the established organizations will actually take risk to stand for some of these things.
2: Yeah, I would say too, it's, and sort of direct service organizations that have often been like, we're just here to provide blankets, food, housing, whatever, also realizing that they need to step up and be a part of the organizing advocacy piece of this work as well, if they're going to see the change for the constituencies they say they want to serve.
0: Well, this is a a wonderfully robust conversation. I, I know, I'm sure we all have a lot to think about, and as listeners, sure, I'm sure do too. And for Paul, I know you referenced a few tools, including the, the strategy tri- triage tool. And for listeners, we will include that in the footnotes for this episode. So feel free to check out the podcast page for a link to more information on that. For Paul, Junius, Robert, Sherry, and Jen, who just had to step away for a moment, thank you so much for joining us today. We look forward to continuing the conversation, answering more uh, community member questions, and just keeping things going. I appreciate you all.
3: Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Bye-bye. Tracy. Thank you.
0: And this closes out this episode of the Collective Impact Forum podcast. If you're interested in learning more about what was discussed, we've included information in the footnotes for this episode. The intro music for this episode is composed by Raphael Crooks, and our outro music is composed by Kevin McLeod. And for those interested in more learning events, registration is now open for Champions for Change 2020, our virtual workshop that will be held on September 15th through 17th, 2020. This online workshop focuses on the role of the backbone in collective impact and is especially geared for those in the early stages of their collective impact work. Although we're sad we can't be with you in person this year, one big plus for hosting a virtual workshop is that we're recording all the sessions and sharing those recordings with attendees after, so you won't have to worry about missing a session, you'll have access to them all. Check out our website at collectiveimpactforum.org for more information. This is Tracy Timmons-Gray, Associate Director here at the Collective Impact Forum and your podcast host. I want to say thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to connecting with you more in our next episode. Until next time, we hope you are safe and well.